Time travel, Animen, political intrigue, and some of Matt Murdock's crazy dancing moves await you in episode 49 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Welcome to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. This is episode 49 of the podcast all about Marvel's blind lawyer by day, superhero by night, the man without fear himself, Daredevil. I am your host, J. David Weeder, but you can call me Dave. This week we have an issue of Daredevil that's kind of wacky and really plays with some sci-fi ideas. It ended up becoming much more interesting than I expected it to. Very interesting, very different kind of story. So I'm very excited to talk to you about Daredevil 39. But here... I want to talk about a random thought I've been having over the last few days. There seems to be some growing backlash from older comic book fans against the term graphic novel. And to an extent, I kind of share that. Because it seems that comic books as an art form are really kind of becoming ashamed of themselves. They want to call themselves graphic novels. Now to me, this is a definition issue. And that's something I take very seriously. Last year, when they changed the meaning of literally in the dictionary to also include figuratively I had a complete and total meltdown. Because how can a word also be amended to define its antonym, its complete and total opposite? Believe me, I could go on a rant right here. I'm going to leave that to the side, but the thing is it's a definition issue. And my definition of graphic novel really stems from something like A Contract with God by Will Eisner. What I see it as is a long-form, somewhat self-contained story. It's intended as a single piece. Contract with God was roughly 250 to 300 pages. Its own story, its own entity, it was in itself a novel. It just happened to be in graphic form. Graphic novel. Now graphic novels are being used to refer to trade paperback collections. This irritates me a little bit. So trade paperback itself just refers to a book that's larger in size than, say, a pocket paperback. And normally a little bit more expensive, more quality paper, things of that nature. And by its definition, a comic book collection of issues would fit into that category. Because they're roughly, what, 8.5 by 11? Varying a little bit, depending on the reprint. So, okay, it's a trade paperback. It collects periodical issues. Let me emphasize that. Periodical issues. A comic book is a periodical. It's published on a certain schedule, whether monthly, bi-monthly, what have you. But it is published periodically ad nauseum. So, using Daredevil as an example, we had Volume 1. It ran 380 issues, periodically, sometimes bi-monthly, sometimes monthly. But it continuously remained in publication with new editions. A novel would be a single piece of work to some extent. So, to apply the idea of a graphic novel to a collection of something that was already published in periodical form just rubs me the wrong way. And of course, we refer to the idea of writing for the trade that these five issues are going to be collected into a trade paperback. This is accurate. That does not mean they are a graphic novel. Those are a collection. So when applying it to a collection of something that's already been published, because novel means new. And if you're looking at a trade paperback, 
collection of issues that is in no way new. Those have been previously published. Those have been put in the hands of readers and consumed to some greater or lesser extent. So the term graphic novel applying to a trade paperback collection is inaccurate. Comic books are important to me. The idea of the periodical is important to me. The continuous relationship you develop with these characters is important to me. So to see some of these New Age fans coming in, following the Avengers or whatever Marvel movie is put out that week, and saying, I read the graphic novel. All right, so you read a comic book. No, no, I read a graphic novel. Just irritates the hell out of me. So maybe I'm becoming an anal retentive old man. I don't know. But to me, graphic novel, by its art form, is a self-contained story. Daredevil being a good example, Love and War would be a graphic novel. Frank Miller and, and Bill Sinkovich decided to sit down, we're going to tell this story in this form. It was not produced in a periodical format. It was a single piece of work, long form, in comparison to a natural issue, and to some extent, self-contained. That is a graphic novel. Daredevil number 39 that we're about to go into is a comic book. So I am going to stop there before I go into a real rant. I just wanted to put this out there because this is my random thoughts through the week. It applies since we are talking about comic books. But what better place to do it than my own show? So I appreciate you suffering my little mini rant. And with that, I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break and come back to talk with you about Daredevil number 39. Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by two true freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with. And be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. And welcome back. As stated up front, we are looking at Daredevil number 39, which was the April 1968 issue. The cover shows a swing-kicking daredevil looking bold cast against a dark blue background where his foes, the animal-themed Unholy Three, lurch to attack or take the brunt of daredevil's boot to the underarm. The cover always struck me as odd because of that blue background, because of the faintness of the characters behind daredevil, because everything's kind of monochromatic, different layers of blue except for daredevil. And it really does stand out. Daredevil looks great on this cover, and I have the physical copy of it on my wall. The digital removes the purple background that distinguish the characters from the background itself. This isn't necessarily bad, but the original still looks bold, still looks bright and beautiful. And the kicker is the icon box up at the upper left-hand corner is in itself monochromatic blue. It's not necessarily a cover that blows my mind, but definitely not one I'm hard-pressed to look away from. The story title itself is a mouthful. The story title is Introducing the Exterminator and the Superpowered Unholy Three. The story was written by Stan Lee, penciled by Gene the Dean Colon, inked by George Tuska, lettered by Artie Simic. 
if you are following along and want a good reprint, Essential Daredevil Volume 2 Trade Paperback reprints it, all in black and white, so it will lose that monochromatic blue. The Marvel Masterworks series Volume 74 includes it. Volume 74 was Daredevil Volume 4. It's also available digitally. Marvel Digital Comixology, Marvel Digital Unlimited. The story begins as Daredevil swings around New York looking for the animalistic Unholy Three who recently broke out of jail and have instigated a crime spree. Hornhead quickly finds them stealing a safe and engages the villains. He also picks up a radio frequency sending instructions to the new Zoo Review Rejects. For as good as Daredevil is, the Unholy Three and their animal prowess get the upper hand and throw the man without fear through a plate glass window. With Daredevil distracted, the Animen make a getaway, but Daredevil is able to hear them mention the name of their boss, the Exterminator. Let me stop there for a moment. I'm going to talk about the opening page, then I'm going to kind of give you some background. The opening page is Daredevil swinging. And you would say, that's nothing special, Dave. That happens all the time. However, this is a Gene Colan swinging scene. So not only is Daredevil looking bold, not only do we have that sort of trail of Daredevil showing motion, we also have him swinging in front of a reflective glass building, which shows the reflection of New York beyond it. And it looks sharp. I don't know if I've said this before, but if I have, I'll say it again and probably again and again. If you pitched me on an issue of Daredevil, drawn by Gene Colan, just comprised of Daredevil swinging across the city, leaping, doing his thing, I would buy that issue. Colan makes the physics work, even though in the real world, the swinging wouldn't quite work. But darn it, I dig it, I believe it. One thing I do appreciate about the issue is it does not waste time. The idea that the Unholy Three have escaped has not been referenced in other issues. It's just out of nowhere. So basically Daredevil says, oh, these guys are out. I got to find them. We nod and we move right along with the story, which is good. However, there's not a lot of background given for the Animen or the Unholy Three, whichever you want to call them. For that, we go back to Daredevil number 10 and 11. With Daredevil number 10, Wally Wood tried his hands at writing for the issue. Well... This ended badly, because Stan made a snarky comment in the introduction for the issue that Wood took personally, and apparently he held that grudge for a long, long time. That snarky comment that Stan made ended up causing Wally Wood to walk away from Marvel. But there we were introduced to the Animen, and the Animen were recruited by a villain called the Organizer, who just sounds like a DYI network host. He can show you how to organize your bins for more maximum efficiency. But he recruited them from the prisons. These were career criminals. And when they were recruited, based on their specialty, he outfitted them with animal-themed costumes and technology. So animal-themed armor to some extent. So the original Animen were Catman. That's right, Catman. He had night vision. He was able to black out sensors with his tech. So he was the cat burglar. You see the theme. Ape Man, who was very acrobatic. Plus, he had a lot of strength. And Birdman, yes, Birdman, not the Michael Keaton movie, but Birdman, he had flight and basically was the recon lookout. Now, there was one additional member in Frogman who was more sewer, aquatics, etc. Nobody bothered to break Frogman out of jail here, so we only have three out of four. The probable reason is, well, Leapfrog had been introduced since that issue, and Stan was probably trying to avoid the confusion with, between the two villains. But it doesn't take long for the action to kick in, and when it does, we get a full page splash. With so much motion and energy, it blows my mind that this is such a simple layout at the same time. Looking at this on the digital, the colors are popping. They look great, the sound effects look great. As Daredevil swings, he's got the motion line behind him with a swish, and he manages to kick both Birdman and Ape Man. 
It moves quickly, it doesn't mess around, and it's a treat for the eyes is what it is. Now, I know what you're thinking as I describe these if you're not looking at the issue. Animal-themed armor. The Unholy Three, the Animen. This sounds ridiculous, Dave. I hear you. And to some extent, I would agree because this could be Matador-level bad. But they work. The powers fit the right character. The tech makes sense. And the costumes, yeah, they're ridiculous, but they're also very different and eye-catching. Especially under Gene Colan's pen, where Ape Man looks intimidating. Catman's claws look sharp. So, even though this should not work, boy does it. And these folks would actually end up appearing in Iron Man down the road for a really good part of the Michelinie, uh Jean Ramita Jr. run. I believe it was Bill Mantlo. Either way, these villains keep coming back. So there's got to be some staying power to them. The thing that kind of threw me, though, is Daredevil picks up the radio waves of their boss talking to the Animen. And I'm kind of trying to piece out why Daredevil wouldn't be able to hear the resonating sound from the earpieces, the voice, because he notices these impulses. And granted, the fight's fairly loud, but at least some trace of a voice. But I guess that's just suspense for you. But this is a really, really solid sequence to open the issue with. Lots of action. Daredevil's holding his own. He's basically playing the villains against each other. But all it takes is one sucker punch from Catman, and Daredevil loses his footing. Now, granted... If Daredevil picked up the villains in the first five pages of the issue, what are we going to do for the rest of it? We're going to have Matt longing for Karen again? That whole thing? Well, yeah, but that's in a moment. But we have to basically space this out because we're also building the new villain, the Exterminator. If your house has termites, you call this villain. Just kidding. He's going to be making his first appearance, which is another attempt at giving Daredevil the scheming, conniving arch-foe. So, let's jump into this section and meet the Exterminator. While Daredevil tries to unravel just who the Exterminator could be, he returns to work at Nelson and Murdoch, where Foggy is pitching a fit. It seems that while Daredevil was under the control of Doctor Doom, he was rude to Foggy's paramour and future wife, Deborah Harris. Foggy vows to bring Daredevil to justice if his bid for the district attorney's office is successful. Matt calls Foggy out. Daredevil isn't Foggy's problem, the fact that he must date Deborah in secret is and he urges Foggy to openly date Deborah. To that end, Matt proposes a double date of Foggy and Deborah and Matt and Karen. This proposal is met with an enthusiastic yes from both Foggy and Karen. Meanwhile, the Unholy Three are hanging with their boss, the Exterminator, and watch as he prepares his new, devastating invention, the T-Ray. The beam, which displaces people in time, is successfully tested on Ape Man, who has returned safely. The Animen are armed with handheld T-Ray guns, which cannot be a good sign. So, stopping once again, let me mention Daredevil being trapped in the body of Doctor Doom has already happened. I'm not going to cover that one, but if you want to see some coverage, look no further than the Fantasticast, episodes 84 and 85. That is at ffcast.libsyn.com. So with that out of the way, first thought that I had with this segment is, Matt is probably not the guy to be taking dating advice from. I mean, he's a nice guy, but he's not great in a relationship. Matt has not made a move on Karen. They've been playing this game for a long time. And here's the bigger question for me. How is Matt Murdock not in Karen Page's friend zone? What magic does Matt have? Because, darn it, in high school or even in college, if I met a girl and we didn't strike it off right then and there, within three days, I was friend zoned. If anybody can give that advice to me, I guess it's not very relevant now, but I would like to pass it on to future generations. How to avoid the friend zone. Because Matt Murdock seems to have that charm. So let's catch up on what's going on with Foggy 
and Deborah and things at the Nelson and Murdoch office. The same two issues that I mentioned, 10 and 11, introduced Deborah Harris, Foggy's high school crush, and she was in league with the organizer, who at that time was reapplying contact paper to kitchen drawers. What happened was Deb actually faked her own kidnapping to manipulate Foggy in his run for the district attorney's office, which was going on even then. This has been a long-running segment. But Deborah had a crisis of conscience because she had to draw the line at hurting Foggy. She did not want to see him injured or hurt, so she turned on the organizer and admitted her part of the plot. And the organizer was revealed to be Abner Jonas, a mayoral candidate for Foggy's Reform Party. So Harris went to jail and then came out reformed, and the first thing she did was call Foggy, and the two hit it off, and the romance has been going on for quite some time in secret, since he is pursuing a campaign still. So this is actually a turning point in their relationship. So then we come to the Exterminator, whose costume looks completely out of place in this book. It's purple and white. Purple. What is the deal with purple villains in Daredevil? You have the Purple Man, of course. You have the Masked Marauder. And now we have the Exterminator. And this guy is covered head to foot. He's got a full helmet that looks a little Iron Man-ish with a checkered purple pattern on it. You know, themed villains for Daredevil have become a challenge, I guess. But to me, the animal-themed villains fit Daredevil better, since most of his power and prowess and skill relies on echolocation, which is an animalistic trait. The Exterminator... Look, I'm just going to break it down for you. He just looks ridiculous. He is ridiculous. Because he's using science! And the thing is, though, the Exterminator oddly has a very long history ahead of him in the pages of Daredevil. And I know what you're thinking, but Dave, I've never heard of this guy. I've never seen this purple and white armor you speak of. That's because he ends up changing into another, more frightening villain later down the road. But that is a story for another day. I just want to plant the seed for it. So, in testing out his T-Ray, the Exterminator has Ape-Man stand in front of a cannon. This thing is a cannon. And the Ape-Man does it, not knowing what this thing is going to do. How dumb is Ape-Man? And I guess it fits his animal theme, but how... You know, you tell me to stand in front of a cannon, I'm like, no, that's okay, I'm safe back here. You stand in front of the cannon. And here's where the sci-fi element comes in, and this is the part that I chewed on for quite a lot of time, because I was kind of fascinated by it. What the ray does, as explained by the exterminator, is it basically takes the time continuum of the target and displaces it. He specifies the time continuum which you alone occupy has been displaced. And I had to think this over, because how can a person have their own time continuum? Are we perceiving time differently? Are we defining time differently? Because, you know, time is a man-made measurement. We use a watch or a clock, minutes, seconds, these are all based on our own invention, not something in nature, clearly. And yet, even with perception, you know, there is a chronology to time. Time progresses, day becomes night, becomes day, etc. So I'm wondering if Stanley didn't invent hypertime here, well before Mark Wade would use it. Now the science doesn't completely work, but we're not looking for real world science in a comic book. I mean, that's nice when it pops up. But it could end up being really boring as well. But it, it hit me because I'm looking. I was looking at it the wrong way. Perception must be the key. Perception is important because we perceive time. So what this is doing is affecting how time is observed, and what it's doing specifically is it's changing the perception of others to not see the person affected. 
So yes, the person's displaced in time to some extent, but it's more the person is displaced in terms of others' perception of it. So as others are perceiving time, you are not a part of the time that they are perceiving. So what it's almost doing is, well, it's basically creating a rip in time. It's an Einstein-Rosen bridge. It's connecting two points at the same moment, like folding the corners of a sheet. Now I point this out not just for commentary, but also because occasionally Stan Lee would be massively ahead of his time. And then he would turn around and do something such as, oh, good, we have T-Ray pistols ready to go. The exterminator has the pistols ready. You know, he had those ready before this very high concept, very potentially dangerous invention was even tested. So scientific genius, yes. Running before he can walk, most certainly. But again, the T-Ray is kind of a cool concept. I really kind of fell in love with that idea of perception and creating a personalized Einstein-Rosen bridge. But I'm not going to dwell too much longer on that because it can end up becoming a very, very dry topic. Let's jump back into the story and see if Matt's night is going as expected. At the dance club, Matt is totally selling his blind man image because he pretends to not be able to dance. Which is great since we know he's quite fleet-footed. But a stool pigeon for the exterminator notices Foggy and Deborah and rats them out. The exterminator and the animal men take off and head for the juke joint to take advantage of the one thing they can hold over Foggy Nelson's head, Deborah. The unholy three descend on the dance club, displacing the doorman in time and wasting no time in targeting Deborah Harris. Foggy is shocked as his lady love disappears before his eyes and Matt laments that he is too late to do anything. The unholy three leave a stunned crowd to piece together what the heck just happened. But Matt realizes the strange truth, Deborah isn't gone because his senses are still picking her up as she seems to be in another dimension. As the Exterminator and the Unholy Three drive away, the villainous boss announces their next target, the man without fear himself, Daredevil. And so ends issue 39. Colin is on point this issue because we visit this club and it's a swinging nightclub, but Karen is looking good. His Karen is vivacious. And poor Matt, the loud music is just making him absolutely miserable, just overloading his senses. And they mention, of course, Mike Murdock. You remember him, his twin brother who's secretly Daredevil, but is actually Matt pretending to be Mike to hide the fact that he himself is Daredevil. Because nothing says convoluted like pretending you're your own twin. Didn't we learn that from an episode of Saved by the Bell or something? But man, Karen, she really is striking. She's built. She's real, realistically proportioned. Her hair is longer. She just looks gorgeous. I should probably stop obsessing over that. Matt's really doing his best Clark Kent. I mean, he's fumbling. He's awkward. Some of that's real because the music's driving him crazy. But Karen, of course, wishes they could restore his sight. While Matt thinks about how he feels for Karen. Same old, same old. Again, he's not in the friend zone. How does that happen? It befuddles me. The Animen, of course, they have a real grudge against Deborah. Because of Deborah's testimony, because of what happened with the organizer, who has great gardening tips, they went to jail. She's the reason they're back in prison. Having said that, why would the exterminator reveal himself to the world? Why is he putting himself out there in such a fashion? Even if he has a district attorney in his back pocket with this, it's still not really wise to reveal, hey, I'm here, I'm planning, I'm plotting. It's like a Bond villain monologuing. And I love the drive back because the Animen didn't clue into the adjustable levers on the guns. And the, and the exterminator's getting upset with this. It's like the exterminator's on the verge of saying, I will pull this car over. 
this villainy road trip is over. And the person I feel worst about is the doorman. You can call him Jim. For those of you that remember the tick in the episode The Evil Midnight Bomber, What Bombs at Midnight? Basically, right now, Foggy is in the sidekick lounge. If you ever re- if you ever get a chance to go back and see that episode, please do. It's one of the best episodes of The Tick, and it is available on YouTube. Sidekick Lounge was basically, it was a shed behind the superhero nightclub that Arthur had to go to. And there was this talking dog and a talking ape. Ah, but the doorman there was Jim. And everything moves so fast, it escalates so quickly, nobody has a chance to do anything. Deb comes out of it in a couple of issues, just to spoil this. But what if this was an actual disintegration ray? We would have just seen the death of somebody. Now this does play out a little bit further. Matt eventually gets put in the time displacement himself and gets free to face the exterminator. There's an explosion and Mike Murdock is considered dead. And as mentioned, the exterminator goes on to be a long time and kind of frightening villain. I don't want to spoil that because I'm sure I'm going to come across it later. But remember the exterminator. So what is the final verdict on Daredevil number 39? I pulled this issue because A time travel, B, the unholy three, and it's a good pulse check on the characters and subplots as we are going down the timeline because we're about to leave the chronology with Daredevil 101 next week and go into those first issues down the road. So I wanted to put like a beacon here, an issue that we can say, okay, we this is where we left off. Here's what was going on then. The Exterminator is a very odd villain, visually, kind of interesting. Time Displacement had a lot of value to my thought process. I spent a lot more time on that concept than a man who's closer to 40 than 30 should invest. It's a very good concept. It doesn't play out in the way that the potential would allow it to. I think Stan missed the boat. And he had the wrong hero. This particular instance, this villain doesn't belong in Daredevil. This would have been a great Spider-Man or really a great Fantastic Four villain. Once you wrap your mind around the Animen or the Unholy Three, whichever you want to call them, they're a cool concept. And they do actually pose a threat, not so much in this issue... But in concept, you have physicality, technology, there's a lot for a hero to go up against. And they do fit better with Iron Man than Daredevil. But I still like them a lot. As mentioned, Colin's art is on game, this issue. Karen looks hot, Foggy is filled with personality, Daredevil himself, who only appears at the beginning of the issue, I should point that out. We only got one instance with Daredevil, the rest was a Matt Murdock story. But Daredevil, when he shows up, looks cool. Now, as mentioned, Matt is front and center. Daredevil gets enough action to fill the quota, but turns out to be really a character piece for the main cast. Again, kind of a good pulse check for the characters within the story and the more soap opera elements. And really, this is relevant because the introduction of the Executioner is a bit of a turning point to some very small extent. Because this is a character that will be haunting Daredevil up to and beyond the Miller run. Not just in what the character presents as a villain, but in his final fate. And the story lays seeds that one day Harlan Ellison, yes, that Harlan Ellison, will rock in a very great issue that I'm definitely going to cover at some point. For as goofy as this issue appears on the surface, the sci-fi aspects and the character beats make a really good issue against all odds. This should not be a good issue. Again, Executioner and the Animan don't necessarily complement Daredevil, but they work. The concept is great enough that you're captivated by the issue and the storyline that follows. So very solid, just above middle-of-the-road issue. So definitely, if you get a chance, check out Daredevil number 39. Now, for the last two episodes, I've been telling you that email had an issue. I had spam. I believe I described it as Plague of Locust-level spam. Well, I have hacked through that jungle with my machete, like a man going through the Brazilian jungles. And I have finally gotten email straightened out. I am working on filters and protections to stop this headache. But for this week... 
I have returned your email. Now, some of these emails go back a ways, not just in when you're hearing this, since I'm several weeks ahead, but in when I am recording this. For example, our first email, and it's actually a sequence of emails, is from Ben Avery, in the first part of what I'm going to call the Ben Avery saga. His email has the subject line of enjoying the podcast, ellipsis. Now, the ellipsis are actually there. He didn't write the word ellipsis. That'd be ridiculous. And Ben writes, so every comic book podcast and their mother, seriously, I'm sure there's an I'm a comic book fan's mother podcast doing this, has played your promo. So I can't place any blame or credit on who caused me to take the dare. Now, I'm just going to blame Professor Allen. When in doubt, always blame Professor Allen. Anyway, I'm only on episode 6, and I almost didn't send you anything because I'm always afraid that I'll just say things that have already been said, so feel free to ignore. Plus, I won't even know if you ignored it or not for over 30 episodes. A couple of thoughts as I have been listening. 1. Your theme music. Could there be a better theme song for a podcast? Of course, I don't know if you've changed it, but I love the way you use it and the way that it breaks up for what you need it to do. What's it from? 2. Your description of your perch on the porch, your little hideaway, gave me goosebumps. It was really, really nice, and what makes this the best Daredevil podcast I listened to. 3. My first real introduction to Daredevil was also on TV. Not The Trial of the Incredible Hulk, but instead something that is a very vivid memory from Saturday morning. I remember nothing else about the episode. But an old episode of Spider-Man or Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends had Peter Parker or Spider-Man in jail needing a lawyer. I just remember Matt Murdock coming into the room to meet his client, and Stanley's voiceover saying that no one knew that his lawyer was also Daredevil, and showed Daredevil speeding through the city skyline. Daredevil did no superheroics in the episode beyond that flashback, at least not as I remember it. 4. I do a podcast about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., and Daredevil is coming to that universe. If you've talked about it already, cool, but I'm very curious what you think about the prospect of the Daredevil Netflix series. Godspeed, Ben. I'm going to add Ben's follow-up email to this, because it had the same subject line, and Ben actually went back and said, and the end of this episode reveals your thoughts, as of then, about the Daredevil Netflix series. Can't decide if that is good timing or bad on my part. Well, Ben, no need to worry about timing, and of course I'm not going to ignore you. That would be very disingenuous to a listener, and just to let you know, I'm a subscriber to the Comic Fans Mother podcast. They've yet to play my promo, but that's a joke. In all seriousness, I always appreciate the support when other podcasters play my promo. I do everything I can to make sure that their promos are played in return, because we are, in and of ourselves, a bit of a, I wouldn't go as far as to say family, but a society or brotherhood, most definitely. And like you, I do blame Professor Allen for everything. If I burn the toast, it's Professor Allen. If I get a flat tire, Professor Allen. When the cold wind blows and the wolf howls, Professor Allen. But that's just me. Maybe I shouldn't air that. Anyway, as you mentioned, yes, I've, I've answered the question about the theme music. I'll always answer it because I love this song. It's called Man Without Fear by Icarus. I love that question. It's always valid because I looked and looked and could not find the right music until I stumbled upon this, thanks to Michael Bailey. And no, you're right. I could not find a better song, literally. Both in terms of quality and editing, I haven't changed it, is the great thing. It remains intact, and I never thought I would be thankful for an extended flute solo, but it seems to work with my end tag. So I'm glad that people love it as much as I do. And I plan to keep it around. And you mentioned my perch on the porch. I actually went back there recently. Uh, one of a few trips. Every now and then I go back. I like to pull over and just look at it. Look at how the old house is managed. And I didn't find anything great. It was just, I wish I could go back in time. And really tell myself, look, one day you're going to love this period. You're going to love the simplicity of just sitting on this step, reading this old tattered comic. Or playing with your Silverhawks figures. Or real Ghostbusters. And you may want to keep those mint if you don't mind. 
But after I realized that the neighbors were getting a little suspicious of my car sitting there, I went ahead and moved on and just thought about it a little bit more later. But it, it, the, the old house has held up fairly well. It was a tiny house. I forgot how little that was. But, you know, you notice little things like a tree is missing that you used to climb, things of that nature. Ah, childhood. But no, seriously, I wish I could have soaked it in more. I, I We have no idea the things that will be important to us as an adult when we're children. No idea when it's a fuzzy memory. And maybe that's what makes those memories special, because we don't stop and say, I need to absorb this. Because they are unfolding as they happen. Because who would have known? Simply sitting, reading a comic book would bring me a smile pretty much any day of the week. And you mentioned the episode of Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, speaking of happy memories, sitting on the couch eating cereal, watching cartoons. That was in the first season, and that show, the intent was that Daredevil might come back later. They were laying that seed. But that show was really, really held up more than I thought it did. They put a lot of Easter eggs in. In the second or third episode, wherever Craven is, when Peter and Angelica are leaving the theater, look at the marquee. The marquee actually reads Karen's name alongside Simon Williams, which fit in with where the character was, because Karen, spoiler, will eventually go to Hollywood to be an actress. It doesn't work out all that well. Just an update on the Netflix series. I'm extremely excited about it still. The trailer has just come out uh, over the last couple weeks as I record this. It has me on board. I'm totally going to, as I mentioned this last week, I'm totally going to binge watch that. I'm going to do a special about it. But everything has been presented in the right way. The creative team seems to have a good grasp on what works. D'Onofrio looks like he's going to own the kingpin. So I'm extremely excited. And again, I'm going to do a special between episodes... 51 and 52. Talking about as a whole, I hope it lives up to the promise. But Ben sent a follow-up email shortly after this. So I'm going to go back to a new Ben Avery email with the subject line, Hulk. Ben writes, hey, Ben Avery here again, playing the late to the game and hoping I'm not just repeating things that lots of other faster and smarter people have already said game. Like the way I asked about your theme song and then immediately after sending the email in the very next episode, I listened to someone asking about it. And the next episode, and a couple of episodes after that, and then, after that, I knew I was taking a chance. Would you say you're taking the dare, Ben? Anyway, Ben continues, Episode 18, Blind Alley, is the Daredevil Hulk team-up that was really only topped by Trial of the Incredible Hulk, in which the Incredible Hulk is not put on trial, nor is there actually a trial of anyone. But I'm letting my sarcasm derail my train of thought. Speaking of trains, Blind Alley and the Trial of the Incredible Hulk both feature Banner in a subway. Interesting. Well, maybe they're interesting to someone anyway, somewhere. My main point, listening to your 18th episode, hearing you talk about Murdoch defending the Hulk in those issues, and dealing with the Hulk in this issue, he is so outclassed against the Hulk. As Daredevil, hand-to-hand, there is no hope. But Matt is not only a ninja-level fighter, ninja-level skills can keep you from getting hit, but he needs something else. Other powers or other skills. And what other skills does he have? Lawyering. What struck me in your descriptions, and I've never heard it get called out, is that here you have Daredevil pull out his lawyering skills, speaking to the Hulk, appealing to his heart, to logic, to emotion, and to truth. Like a good lawyer, good in both the measurement of abilities and moral senses, where Daredevil fails, Matt Murdock succeeds, especially in Blind Alley. He causes Hulk to stop, to think, the way a lawyer who deals in truth would want a jury or judge to respond. I like this kind of thing, where skill sets from one identity bleed over into the other identity. I may be reading too much into this, but it struck me in the way you presented it. Godspeed, Ben. And thank you, Ben. You know, just to speak to your last point first, Matt is always the core of Daredevil. Because there's not a huge divide between them. 
he doesn't necessarily switch Persona's whole cloth the way Batman does when he puts on the costume or the way Superman does when he takes off the Clark Kent glasses. Daredevil is Matt in a costume. Daredevil is a means to an end. So Daredevil does bring skills from both aspects to the table. You have a little bit of Daredevil in the courtroom and Matt in the streets, which sounds like it could be a t-shirt. And that's something I always like about the character is that divide isn't a great chasm. You're talking about a man who does essentially a task and doesn't switch identities. And I like that, that there's no real complication. Again, it's Matt in a suit, a means to an end. And I like that a lot about Daredevil. And I still like that issue a lot. Like you, I like that he he really does turn to different skill sets when he needs them. And yeah, as you mentioned, there's no trial in Trial of the Incredible Hulk. But I don't know if they drew the train sequence from this issue or just realized, you know, naturally what the pressure cooker scenario would be in a subway. Although Bruce should probably be aware of that, as he is in the 2008 movie. You know, just, I'm not going to go into a full rant here. I'll turn this into a thing, but I think Trial of the Incredible Hulk actually had some good points for it. None of it in the Hulk department. It was not a great Hulk movie. But we actually got to see Daredevil on the screen for the first time, and Rex Smith was actually not bad. And the costume, for as much as I really didn't like it, especially the sleep mask aspect, most of it I ended up liking more than I thought I would. It looks better on the screen than in stills, I'll tell you that. But the things that kind of took away from me, as, a, as if it's a backdoor pilot, if we're looking at it like that, is when Daredevil suits up in a scene, we see his shadow cast against a nice suburban neighborhood. And suddenly it took me right out of the action. Because something that would be dramatic, a cast against like a dark alley, just suddenly becomes, eh. And the biggest thing that really took me out of it was the kingpin. I like Reese Davis. I like him a lot. He's a great Sala. He was a great dwarf. But he's better than his portrayal here. I blame that on not just him. I mean, there's some of him in there, but why would he wear the sunglasses the whole time? What was with him being plugged into TVs at all hours of the night? Like, he's a couch potato. It just, it brought it down for me, especially in the conclusion when he has a, spoiler, floating car. However, the character interaction between Banner and Murdoch was perfect. And Murdoch himself was pretty well written on point, even if the supporting cast was completely off the charts. But definitely want to thank you for your emails, Ben. We're going to hear from Ben a little bit more next week. But looking at the link, it's time to wrap up this week's episode. Next week, episode 50. Episode 50 is here. Daredevil 101 begins with issue one from 1998, written by filmmaker Kevin Smith. We're going to see Daredevil who has lost his faith, and a woman's going to come along with a child that's just going to really rock his world. That's in seven short days. Until then, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one! They call a man without fear Never far away Whenever danger's near There's never fight for what is right There's never fight for you tonight You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. 
this show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he must hide his sadness and fight the human madness. Friday, when you hear his name.